Fade in. Interior. Screenplay podcast. Day. It's just myself and Kia on today's show. My name's David Ferrer, Kia Wilkins, professional screenwriter, my co-host. Uh, we're talking about the first 10 pages of Shaun of the Dead, one of my favorites, written by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg. We also catch up on what uh, projects Kia has on the go at the moment, which is a good insight into the life of a working freelance screenwriter here in Australia, which Kia is. Also, towards the end of the show, I tell a story about the time Nick Frost and Simon Pegg took part in a prank that I was the subject of. I referenced that it was uh, for a video my friend made for his radio show, but uh, the video no longer is online and I thought it was just lost to the ages. But after recording the show, I reached out to my friend just in case it was on a hard drive somewhere and it was, it is, it lives. So at the end of the show, after I tell the story, you will hear the actual audio from the video of when Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and my friend Dean pulled a prank on me at the World's End premiere in Melbourne in 2013. So thank you to Dean Thomas, Ariel Guthrie, Nova 100, and of course, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. If you like this show, please leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Hit that five stars if you think we deserve it. And get in touch anytime. First 10 pod on socials and first10pod at gmail.com. 10 spelt out T-E-N. All right, here we go. Shaun of the Dead. Do you ever think that modern life is not for you? Do you do the same dead-end job every day? Is your love life dying on its feet? To a wonderful mum. Oh, oh. Have you ever felt that you're turning into... Something in the world. A zombie. First 10 pages, Keir Wilkins, it's just you and me this episode. How are you going? I am well. How are you? Pretty good. We're here to talk about um, Shaun of the Dead from 2004, written by Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. There, You've been reading this one, like you suggested we do this, because you've been reading it anyway, haven't you, for a new for something you're working on? Yeah, yeah. I'm writing a pilot um, for a company called Werner and... I kept talking about Edgar Wright as the point of reference. And then as I was getting into the writing and trying to do some of those sort of fast-paced uh, montage quick-cut sequences that Edgar Wright is sort of made his name on, uh, the page count was just blowing out on my script. And I was like, how how did he format it? I need to go back and, and reread some Edgar Wright scripts to kind of see how they get around it. Um, and how they managed to kind of convey the visual style on the page. Uh, so I, yeah, I started reading Shaun of the Dead and then just remembered how great the first 10 pages are and well, the entire script is. It's a really, really fantastic script. And it's no surprise that it's one that is often sort of referenced to people studying screenwriting as a, as a good one to check out and study um, because it does you know, structurally it hits so many of those kind of hero's journey beats um, and it's, yeah, it's just a great, a great screenplay. So, um, yeah, I thought we should take a look. This is the second episode in, in As Many where we've talked about how montages are written. We talked about it with Naomi about um, jo Josie and the Pussycats. Great episode. Go listen to that one if you haven't. Um, but uh, not to jump ahead too much, but the way they write montages in this is different to how it's written in... Josie and the Pussycats. And in my, like, you know, my position in this show, which is this, you know, I'm still learning uh, and I'm 
the fan is is finding more and more evidence that so much of what a screenplay looks like is based on your own personal taste and your own personal writing style and however you think the information is going to best be conveyed. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think, you know, it doesn't, no one is going to be pulled out of a screenplay because it doesn't look the way that they traditionally grew up reading screenplays. They're going to be pulled out if the story's not working or if it's boring or if they're not, if they're confused. So if they're, if you are doing a good job of just telling your story uh, and and putting, you know, you're trying to inception the film into their mind so that whilst they're reading, they're watching yeah. that movie and going, oh, yeah, this is going to be a great film. So whatever you need to yeah. do to put the visual images into their brain so that they can see how this film is going to come together, then that's that's what you should be doing, I think. And just a bit of bit of a spoiler. There's a lot of ellipses used for the way that they've written montages mm-hmm. in this one. A lot of dot dot dot. Um, but okay, cool. How how far into the process of this pilot that you're working on are you? And is it the only thing you're working on at the moment? Give us an overview of your sort of your your um, workload. Uh, it's not the only thing I'm working on. I'm juggling a few different things. I've just. Uh, a show that I've been working on for the last year has just gone into production. So I've just kind of finished doing the, um, you know, getting the production drafts of that show out the door, which four episodes of that. And then I'm about to begin a workshop on somebody else's show, which should be a lot of fun because that's just kind of a, a very different part of the brain. And you, it's, it's kind of the most fun part of the whole job is when, you know, you're not the person that has to go away and turn this into a into a thing. You just get to sit in that room and throw out ideas and, you know, spitball and, and just try and give as many ideas and stories and anecdotes and, um, yeah, just offer up as much as you can. So that'll be a fun couple of weeks on that. Um, what's, your, what's your style in a workshop? What, you know, are you quiet choosing your moments do you get excited and just shout some something that pops into your mind do you yes and other people's ideas what do you like it's a great question it would be very interesting for me to know how i perceive my own role in the room compared to how other people see me but my interpretation of my own behavior in these workshops is that i'm i tend to be maybe a little bit more probably a bit slower, a bit more, um, I'll choose the word thoughtful, even though (laughs) I don't know if that's entirely true, but I'm just in awe of those kind of, there's a certain kind of writer who is just so generative, who can just sit there and be like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Uh, Or, you know, this isn't working and they can just sort of do the beautiful mind thing where they can stare up at the whiteboard and the palm cards and just rearrange and be like, yeah, what if the flow of dramatic tension was that instead that I wish my brain worked like that a lot, a lot of the time, but it doesn't, I tend to just sort of need moments to sit silently and stare at the board and be like, okay, okay. What have we got? What are the pieces we've got up on the board? How can we move them around a bit slower on the uptake? I can't imagine you would ever pitch a problem. I can imagine you'd you'd be very considerate and um and well thought out that if you were ever going to identify something you didn't think worked that you'd have a solution you'd have a suggestion at least you would never just go I don't I think that sucks I I don't think that works yeah or if not a solution at least a uh, something that is using craft language or an understanding of story 
to identify why it's not quite working. Even if you haven't quite got the solution to the problem yet, you don't just go, I don't like that. Well, that sucks. But I think if you can say, it feels like this is, you know, I'm ahead of the story here because it feels like I have too much information that the character doesn't have. Or, you know, if you can put something in those terms, I feel like it's a lot more. To start the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, And... You know, you want to create a vibe in a room, I think, where people feel safe and that everyone's happy to share mm. um, shitty ideas, which 90% of them will be because that's how you, you know, you get rid of the first 10 ideas off the shelf to get to the real gold. You've got to wade through those. What a feeling cliches. that is when you when you think you've got half an idea and then you start pitching it and then a sentence and a half into it, you realise it's not landing and you're sort of getting lost yourself <laughs> and you need to... Why am you, I still you, talking? Your words are still coming out of your mouth, but you need to somehow work out how to get out with some of your dignity intact. That's always, that's such a fun moment. Yeah. And then, and you know that there's a room full of writers who are all equally neurotic who will then retreat into themselves for the next 10 minutes and, and be thinking, all they're thinking is like, am I an idiot? Did I just make an idiot of myself? Am I never being hired again? That was shit. Why did I say that? You fucking idiot. I'm exposed. (laughs) They know. And then you tune back into the room and you're like, okay, here we are. Let's go. Uh, Well, that's exciting. That sounds like you've got plenty on because I I, I hope this isn't giving too much away, but often like we, we, we have talked in the past, just caught, you know, and we've just caught up socially and the, the freelance life of a freelance screenwriter sometimes sounds extremely stressful and um, there's not a lot of uh, uh, security. Um, not a lot of security and, and it seems to me to fluctuate between, oh, God, I'm never going to work again. It's so quiet. What am I going to do? I need to start Googling backup careers. And then you get the jobs and you're like, oh, my God, how am I going to manage all of this? What if I can't deliver? What if my ideas are shit? What if people find out I actually don't know how to write? And I'm just still trying to work out when when it gets good. When <laughs> when's the part when you're like, <laughs> I just get to do this one thing, and I just get to fully immerse in this one show. Fortunately, it's a bit of an Australian problem. I think just you know the economics There's of no it time. mean that yeah. you don't. You very rarely can just survive off. You know, I've got one project optioned, and they want me to write the pilot. Like that'll sustain you for a while, but you probably have to be picking up episodes of other things here and there or doing rooms or you know but to the idea of these kind of american rooms that go for four or five months and it's just like all the only thing i need to think about for the next five months is this world these characters these stories i mean that sounds like heaven to me very australian specific question because i know you've written um episodes of neighbors how long do you have to turn in an episode of a script for neighbors for neighbors specifically, you get um, uh, two weeks. But the I hope I'm not giving away any trade secrets. I don't think so. The um, the a lot of the heavy lifting is done because there are in-house storyliners who will break the story yeah. for you. So what you receive is quite a comprehensive scene breakdown. So even though two weeks isn't uh, a huge amount of time. You know, in other contexts, it, it's plenty for that show. Oh, and so also you'll, you'll get the the main plot points and beats that you have to hit and character turning points and stuff. Um, yeah, you'll get quite, all that outlined. quite thoroughly. Like, you know, oh, cool. the document you read is kind of, I don't know, 12, 13 pages and 
the script itself is 40 pages. So, you know, it's uh, they're quite detailed outlines of the scenes. So the storyliners are the unsung heroes of, of Soap. I think they're the ones who are really pumping out story and the freelance writers kind of get a pretty pretty sweet deal, I think. Yeah, that's, we're going to do a bit more of these um, in season two, a bit more just episodes Kia and I and, and we'll, we'll, we'll ramble on a bit about what's going on in our lives a bit more, um, as you just heard. But we are here to talk about Shaun of the Dead, which is, Kia, this is the movie that when people ask me what my favourite movie is, and I say, well, what answer do you want? Do you want the the prestige answer, the one that the the movie that I really like that everyone accepts is an all time great, or do you want the movie that I can just sit down and turn on and enjoy any moment of any day? Because if that's what you're after, this is right up there. Mm-hmm. Shaun of the Dead. It is just so. It's just so enjoyable. It really is. It holds up really well. Uh, and it's just, I mean, I can't believe it was 2004 that it came out. I, I remember seeing it, remember being blown away by it. And it and it was one of those, even though, you know, there was a lot of familiar elements in it and it's obviously playing on a lot of those familiar elements and those tropes, it felt like it did move the dial somewhat in terms of comedy, in terms of genre mashups, um, you know, that this film got called a Zomcom. And I remember just after that, there was just this explosion of like, okay, what two things can we smash together? Like, let's go, uh, you know, cowboys and aliens. It's a Western in space. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like just. Well, they even returned to this mashup with, um, what's it called? Cold, uh, the one with. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Brain fart. There's been quite a few zombie um zombie comedies now and there was one recently called Anna and the Apocalypse which jammed musical kind of Broadway musical style oh, a musical well. so it was a zombie comedy musical so yeah I feel like it really kicked off the whole genre mashup thing okay warm bodies was the movie I was thinking of but in that uh, one yeah. the protagonist is a zombie yes uh, yeah that's no I'm right. I, I have a very distinct memory of of my friend at the time telling me about this movie and saying, yeah, it's a romantic comedy with zombies. And I just thought, that's great. That's really, really funny. I actually, I I have a lot of love for Simon Pegg and I'm a massive, massive fan. I was a much, you know, like it it, it used to burn a lot brighter than it does um, now. But I have a story where I met, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and they took part in a prank on me I'll save that story till the end oh you got me it was one of the highlights of my life to that point uh, but also deeply embarrassing and you will totally understand why when uh, we get to that Um, there's your radio credentials coming into play yeah it's called stay tuned to the end of the show horizontal tease uh so watching watching this movie and reading the first 10 pages did you get any post-pandemic wow this feels different now vibes because particularly the opening like not not just limited to the first 10 pages but the whole opening until everything sort of clicks in until the, there's a there's a woman in the backyard uh everything the way it was unfolding just gave me some uh pandemic vibes where it was just spreading like wildfire no one knew what was going on yeah and, and, and until, it seemed like everyone was getting infected yes 
Absolutely. And it, and it had that thing of kind of until it, you can understand in the abstract, but until it like has a direct impact on your life, it's just something that you're watching on the news or reading in the yeah. papers or is happening to someone else over there. And, and how quickly that changes feels like very similar to how my experience of the pandemic anyway, I was like, it went from sort of kind of jokes about like, hope it doesn't get to Australia to being, cause I, I was quarantined quite early on because I had taken a trip to the ER and got, um, got a call from the hospital saying someone else sitting in the waiting area whilst you were there um, has been confirmed as having coronavirus. So you have to isolate for 14 days. And I was like, what do you mean? You're not allowed to make me stay in my home for 14 days. I was outraged um, because it still just felt like such a not real thing. And I was like, surely I'm still like, but I can go to the shops, right? Like I just, my, but, and then, you know, I think it was the final day of those 14 days of self-isolation. The entire state went into lockdown and then it was like, oh shit, this is like a, this is a thing. And it all of a sudden was very real, just like, you know, in this, it's all fun and games. And then there's a zombie in your backyard. Do you think, I feel like there might be uh, a pitch out there following the pandemic where someone will write something about zombies and there will be a vaccine developed. And that might help with the conclusion of the film is that there's like a zombie vaccine because it sort of feels like we're nearing the end of World War Z. Is that what happens? There's all, that that whole film, the mission is about a vaccine. I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. There Brad you go. Pitt's that was my that was my exciting idea. But Brad Pitt's already done it. Uh, no, but I think uh, as with most ideas, I think it'll be really interesting to see how these sorts of movies play now and whether what the appetite yeah, it doesn't seem them. quite as fun anymore. <laughs> Yeah, and I also think you can't get away now. Like, everyone is so sort of literate in epidemiology and vaccines and this sort of thing that you can't just be like, no, but the cure's in this vial and, you know, and we've just got to get the vial to the thing or the patient zero. Like, everyone just, you can't fool people that easily anymore. They're going to be like, what do you mean? No, there's got to be, like, at least six months of clinical trial. Yeah, (laughs) where's AstraZeneca and all of this? Yeah, this doesn't hold up. Yeah, what about the privatisation of the different, you know, opposing big pharma companies and, you know, all yeah, that stuff. I wonder if, if another um, victim of the pandemic will be zombie films. It kind of felt like we, we've at, we're at the tail end of the zombies era anyway. Like The Walking Dead mm. has jumped the shark. It'll well, not go. jumped the shark. It's just moved, it's moved beyond any of the, well, all, all but... Um, I think one or two of the original cast. It, it just it feels like it's washed through the same way that vampire movies did. Yeah, no doubt it will come back, but it does feel like a lot of the possible angles and ways in have been explored. And I just think it, it will either go one of two ways. I think it will be people will not want to see anything remotely claustrophobic that has the word virus in it that, you know, causes PTSD flashbacks to what has been horrific um, few years for a lot of people, or it will, you know, it will be something that is so in the zeitgeist that people want to reflect and, you know, use films as a way to tell these stories and to reflect on the experience and how the world changed. Like, it'll, I'm not sure. It'll go one or two ways. I, I remember, like, post 9-11 when the first kind of World Trade Centre movies started coming out and 
it felt like they misjudged that is my memory of it. It was like, oh, no, too soon. We're not ready People's to sort of appetite reflect on those experiences. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, I always just, I always think on this subject, I always think straight to, I remember reading an article in like uh, Empire Magazine or something that uh, at the height of the Iraq war, Body of Lies came out. So very prestige Leonardo DiCaprio, Ridley Scott movie came out. And at the same time, Beverly Hills Chihuahua was released and Beverly Hills Chihuahua performed better. And the conclusion that they came to was that people don't want to feel bad and watch a movie about CIA operatives um, in the Middle East. People want to watch some funny chihuahuas in Beverly Hills. Maybe that's just uh, the filmmaker's way of justifying their failure to themselves and maybe <laughs> Beverly Hills Chihuahua is objectively a better film than Body of Lies. Who are we I've to never say? seen it. Maybe we need to talk about the first 10 pages of Bever- Beverly Hills Chihuahua <laughs> uh, and Beverly Hills Chihuahua 2. I'm pretty sure there is a sequel. Oh, well, um, if it was good enough to get a sequel. Yeah, absolutely. The, this, this screenplay is uh, really long. For a movie that's only 90 minutes, they pack a lot in. It go, It's 132 pages. Yeah, which I think says a lot about um, the filming style and the kind of the tone and the pace of the film. It's, yeah, it's wild because the script, it's not like there's just a bunch of scenes in the screenplay that didn't make it to the film and that's how they got it down to 90. It's pretty much all there. All 132 pages are pretty much what appear on screen. It is just that everything moves super quickly and there are quite long um, descriptive paragraphs that take like four seconds on screen because it's just like these rapid fire quick cuts um yeah it's really it is really interesting that the and it begs the question i think of kind of if you were if you have a film that is super stylized and this is kind of why i opened the script and what i was wrestling with is if you're trying to do something that's super stylized and is going to have a very particular flavor how do you convince someone on the page and how do you get readers to understand that, like, yes, this is a 132-page script, but it's going to be a 90-minute film because this is the way we're going to shoot it. And maybe it's just about Edgar Wright's track record and, you know, their work on Spaced and there's some sort of evidence that's got, to show That's got to be it. It's got to be track record. because Yeah, it's... because on the page you can't really see what the tone of this film is going to be. Yeah, and, and we've talked about a lot of uh, f- screenplays that are very literary. This is not one of them. The way that this is uh, written is is very, very template, very um, blueprinty. So, like, mm-hmm. on page, where are we? Page two. We reveal that Sean is sitting with a woman, Liz. They are both in their late 20s. Liz looks slightly concerned. Sean looks slightly confused. They are having a drink. I mean, it's not very Beautiful. emotive. Lyrical. It's not, it's not <laughs> like, whoa, I can, you know, it's like I, I can see that, but it's not really telling me anything. And I think that's just... It's Edgar Wright. You can turn around and go, look, just look at Spaced. Look at that music video I did with the guy from Mighty Boosh. I know what I'm doing. I'm a visual filmmaker. This is just a, this is a blueprint. Um, yeah. He's also such I, a cinephile that he can probably yeah. point to about 100 other films and be like, no, the, the editing style will be like these five films. And, you know, he, he knows know Other filmmakers and screenwriters would probably put those references in. Um, Potentially, yeah. Yeah. Make it, uh, maybe made a sizzle reel or something. 
Yeah, like I know Tarantino has written, like, you know, the direction of, oh, they, they exchange dialogue in a rapid fire, his girl Friday uh, style. Um, but that's, this is just so, it's just very bare minimum. And I think it also has to do with, I'm just going to try, I'm going to share my screen with you. Uh, and so we can hear this. It's something that's from the DVD extras. So this is a, a, one of those movies I've poured over all of the extras many, many times. And it's something that I think is unique to perhaps Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's writing style. Uh, and is that is that they do something that they call the flip draft. And it's where they draw out the um, the beats of the film on butcher paper on like a right. whiteboard and they flip through it. So we'll just have a quick watch of this. Can you see my screen all right? I can, yeah. Okay. Hopefully you can hear this as well. Here's scene one, the Winchester. Just lots and lots of writing, writing, writing. There's the nut bit when they caught the nuts. Do you remember that bit? Was it in it? You tell me. Was the C word in it? You tell us. That, yes. Okay. Credits. Credit sequence, titles, Shaun of the Dead, at the stage we hope. Traffic jam, bus stop, muck jobs, clubbers, all those things happening at the beginning. Uh, it's the first part of the scene with Pete. Uh, bang! Into the next kitchen, a slam bang transition. Sean and Pete together, Sean defends Ed, Dr. Frank and Fur, Tequila, Fat Girl, that should all make sense. We're all those lines in it, Fat Girl. So you see it's sort of like a, they've outlined it. Yeah, it's like a, a condensed, condensed version, but you can see that they already sort of know the style of the film uh, before they've, yeah, before they've even opened Final Draft to start writing it out. The, and it's pretty, it's pretty uh, low-fi, but you, I could imagine them using that in a pitch meeting because they are also selling it and selling the energy and the pace of the screenplay, the idea, the story as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. And they also they did the same thing for Hot Fuzz. And as you see in that, uh, I might, might just put in the on our social media or in the show notes a link to that video. You see that a lot of what they go through is shows up on screen exactly how it uh, is in that. And that's from 2001, I think they say. So that was, you know, years ahead of um, a couple of years before it came out and not that much changed in that time. Yeah, some of the, like, specific gags and little visual details and stuff are all, all there already. Mm. So what do you reckon about, I see you've made a note about the inciting incident, um, which usually happens in the first 10 pages of a screenplay. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, it's kind of, I would argue that the inciting incident of this film is actually Liz breaking up with Sean. But that happens on page 28, which would be incredibly late if that was truly the inciting incident. It's only minute 17 of the actual film, which again, we know that this screenplay is, the page count is longer than the screen time. So 17 minutes isn't crazy late to have an inciting incident, but I think what they cleverly do is they sort of, they almost split the inciting incident into two, two sections where, you know, in the, in the very opening scene, you get sort of the, the stakes of the inciting incident that you can see that there's trouble in their relationship and she gives him one last shot. Arguably that is also, you know, you could call that an inciting incident, but I'd say what actually causes the disruption in Sean's world, in his life, what upsets the status quo and sent, causes him to take action and go on a mission is the fact that his girlfriend dumps him. Um, 
and that happens, yeah, quite late. And the whole first act is quite a long one compared to a lot of films. It's kind of 35 minutes long of a 90-minute film, so it's quite a long first act. What do you call the section when he and Ed are commiserating and Ed's trying to tell him that he doesn't need her and that life's good just hanging at the pub? Yeah, interesting. I don't know what what I would classify that as or whether it falls under any of those sort of classic structural breakdowns if it has a specific title but it's yeah it's his it's just building a bit more character and a bit more yeah a bit more of their relationship Blake Snyder has a a section about like stating the theme uh around that point Mm. of a film's structure and I think it is in that scene where Nick Frost's character, Ed, says, I'm not going to tell you there's plenty more fish in the sea. I'm not going to bombard you yeah. with cliches. But, uh, you know, look, it's not it's the not end of the world. world. And I guess that maybe yeah. is kind of the point where they state the theme of, I get you can call yeah. that a theme. It's a pretty loose definition. But um, maybe that's what that's, you know, what that would be in terms of the structural breakdown of the, Screenwriting gurus. Well, on that point, um, might be a good time to talk about that. How this something that this screenplay does well is writing characters who are best friends when one is clearly a dead shit. So Ed obviously is holding Sean back, but uh, they manage to make him endearing, and you and you get why Sean wants to be friends with him, and why Ed wants to be friends. With Sean, you and it's, some of it's like very even subtle, um, just the little things about how well they know each other. But that's something I see like happen in good films. Like a classic example is Swingers, um, the character that what's his name? Vince Vaughn, John Favreau. John Favreau. So John Favreau's character. Like, I love, I love Swingers. I love like you know, there's there's a lot about it that that just feels like it captures um, something about being in that time and space and a lot that's very sort of classic about that movie for an indie film of that time it's like iconic but you watch that film and you go why is Vince Vaughn friends with this guy he is an absolute bummer like there is nothing that you go why would anyone want to hang out with John Favreau's character all he does is complain um you're not given any sort of uh, insight into why Vince Vaughn would care and keep calling him and keep trying to get him out because then when he does he's no fun at all he's just a drain uh so that's something that i see happens and i feel like this 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 film could have fallen into that because nick frost's character is a complete dead shit but they managed to make him the, the you see like there's just genuine affection and care some of it may be like toxic and that um that sean's character should move on from but he just can't uh, but it's something that it just does really well. Yeah, I think it does. It, and you're right, there is a long history of these kind of pairings in cinema, like With Nell and I is another one that springs to mind where it's like two people with a lot of history, one person has grown or is at least trying to grow and the other person is perfectly happy with the way things are and that's where the that's a, that's where oh the my God, yes, lies. absolutely. And I- I made it may have even brought up swingers at that in that first episode as well. I'm repeating myself a lot in this episode, but um, yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's a dynamic that is uh, that has been 
that's that's not yeah i think there's something universal about it i imagine everyone has friends from their childhood who there's like still a lot of affection for and still a lot of nostalgia attached to that time in their life but and so they persist with the friendship even though they're moving in different directions so i think the universality of that dynamic is probably what makes it such a compelling thing in cinema yeah it's always interesting in real life when those friends uh come head to head with new friends at a bucks party Mm. have you ever been to like a (laughs) bucks party where i've been one of friends who i met in university so i didn't know them growing up and then their high school friends are there as well and they are always the ones who are like guys i know he said he literally doesn't want a stripper and would hate that and it would be the worst thing but let's get a stripper (laughs) (laughs) i've been to i know he said he's off the drop yeah yeah. let's get bags They're always, they're always like, how are you two friends? And it's because, well, you were different, you were children and you've got this shared history. And that does mean something, Mm -hmm. even though really you've become two completely different people and this person has moved on. It is a great, great dynamic that they set up and it's done so well in the first 10 pages. I love that that opening scene so easily could have been Sean and Liz talking about this guy, Ed, uh, and having a problem with it and talking about her housemates and it just being a two-hander. But instead they were like, well, let's, we want to see the conflict in action. We want to see why Ed is so annoying and why he's always hanging around. So what they, they play with that tension of having Liz and Sean having a conversation. It's like, it's not that I don't like Ed. Sorry, Ed, it's not that I don't like you. And they whip Pan over to Ed and he's like, yeah, no worries. So, like, actually having him, having all of these sources of conflict in their relationship present in the scene to play out in real time rather than them just kind of complaining back and forth about things that have happened off screen, it's a stroke of genius. It's so well done. Yeah, and it's all so tight and there's such amazing rhythm to it and it packs in so many, so much character and so much um, and sets up so many relationships. And I think it also helps endear Ed because they're like, Hey, don't talk about the guy in front of him. And he's the only one who's like having fun in that moment. And he's the only one that offers everyone a drink. He does it in a, in a like a crude way. Um, but I think all these little, it establishes everyone so efficiently. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's awesome. And it's, it sets up a lot of gags that then turn out to be callbacks yeah, later on. Always- how do you feel about do, do How do you feel about that? Do you... Like it, I can see some people thinking like, oh, it's a bit cute. It's a bit of a trick. Um, I personally do like it. I think what because it goes hand in hand with this whole thing at the beginning of the film of knowing that you're watching a zombie film and so you're ahead of the characters, you're noticing all of these things going on in the world that Sean hasn't wised up to yet. You're seeing all of the kind of the telltale signs of a zombie outbreak. So because they are also building attention in that way of kind of pumping up this balloon. And so you're waiting for it to burst for the moment where Sean realizes that there's a zombie outbreak occurring. They're using that tension to complement the tension of them. Basically just every line in this first, almost in the first act is funny in its own right, but it is also going to be a callback later. It's sort of uh, laying the groundwork for a punchline. Uh, And I think it works in this instance because there is this tension of like we are just stacking the deck. 
we are just stacking and stacking and stacking and stacking. And so the excitement of like, I can't wait till all of this starts to topple and we get joke, 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 zombie, mm. zombie, zombie, zombie. Like it's, it's a yeah. really clever use of dramatic flow of dramatic tension, I think, to be ahead of. And a lot audience. of the, a lot of the setups that are happening in peripheral and that Sean is not noticing, um, a lot of that stuff lends itself to, I'll say rereading, but really rewatching. Because then you go, ah, oh, yes, that the soccer kid was there, and the guy, look, it's the guy in the in the suit with the bow tie, and now he's coming through. That was him. Yeah. All that, like, it's that level of setup and callback, uh, as well as things like the repeated use of exacerbate, and even across the the whole. Cornetto trilogy is that we'll, they've called it the Cornetto trilogy, and that is just a running gag that is set up in this one. Yeah, um, one, one that I love, one that I think is a, a beautifully subtle one because they don't actually call back to it specifically. But if you were paying attention, you could be like, "Oh, that's very clever." Is when the housemate uh, says, "If you want to live like an animal, go live in the fucking shed," and then of course, yes. Ed ends up living in the shed as a zombie. I think that's a very deliberate. Oh, that's yeah. very deliberate. 100% back, deliberate, yeah. but it's just not as, you know, as you said, it's a trick and it can be a bit cute. And that's one where they pulled back, I think, at, you know, mm. to not have Sean say like, well, so-and-so said you should live in the shed. It's, you know, mm. it just relies on you having remembered that little line that was a bit throwaway at the time until a second viewing or unless you were really paying attention. Um, talking about montages, as I mentioned earlier, so I'll, I'll read one. So this is the, this is, um, restaurant place properly. So this is after, this is after the Winchester when, when he's agreed, okay, I'll book, I'll book the place that does all the fish. So titles begin a montage of greater London, Saturday, 8am, all action in the sequence are choreographed to the title music. Dot, dot, dot. A traffic jam. Drivers stare blankly ahead. A middle-aged man sits in a jag wearing driving gloves. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. A bus stop. Bored commuters ignore each other. And this is all new line, each one. A vast supermarket car park. Customers park as they uh, as a bow-tied old man slowly collects discarded trolleys. So, again, we've talked about this in previous episode, montages that are then let read by the line producer going, what? And assistant directors going, whoa, hang on. In that little one-fifth of the page, that is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different locations and setups. But, uh, again, very efficiently and to the point, uh, very efficiently written, very much to the point. And the other one to point out, because it's a very stylistic thing notable to Shaun of the Dead, is the is the parodying the trope of the getting ready of the, you know, from action movies when they're, when they're gearing up and you get the quick cuts of like putting the gun in the holster and zipping up the thing. But they keep that as a running joke, but for very mundane things. So when Sean's getting ready for work, so this is how it's written on page seven. It just says a toilet is flushed, a shower run, teeth brushed. Sean now wears a white short sleeve shirt. He straightened his, so it's just, again, it's not, there's no like specific, hey, this is a reference to action movies it's an action movie style uh, gearing up sequence, but it's Sean doing his daily routine. It's just a toilet's flush, shower run, teeth brushed. Don't worry. I'm Edgar Wright. I know what I'm doing. I yeah, know what it looks like. It relies, it definitely, I think, relies on this, 
understanding of his style because if you read that you'd be like why why am i like wasting screen time i'm watching yeah. him brush his teeth but when you a toilet flush shower <laughs> yeah. run teeth brush what? when you get the rhythm can can that get can that go do we need that yeah, can i just put a red line through that no no you don't understand it's a no, trust me it's a very delicate rhythm that i've created here and these this is all very vital the literal first 10 pages ends when pete sean's housemate is complaining about ed but uh so as we've said the actual 10 pages the 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 part that hooks goes a bit longer than that what would be the next 10 pages that you would uh point to once you've read the first 10 and you're like yeah "Yeah, cool and then you really drive it home with the next 10 i mean i think the the first act which is the first 35 pages is the best part of the film for me i i think the first act is brilliant. Um, and so the next 10 pages I'll point to are probably still within that. And it's that um, making a plan sequence, I think is really fantastic where they give you three alternate, slightly tweaked versions as they kind of go, rather than just having a scene of dialogue where two people go, well, why don't we do this? And someone points out the floor in that plan. They show you in in very quick succession the outcome of that plan and where they would hit a roadblock. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Regroup. Go again. Yeah, go again. What about this version? Pitch. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And really that, that's, that's something that's like stood the test of time since the, since this came out. And even when the pandemic was happening, uh, was just starting to kick off. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost did a parody of that, like a pandemic specific parody online because the, the line like, and have a cup of tea and wait for this all to blow over has become you know, it's because it's one of those lines that people quote and has uh, stuck with everyone. So I think that's a good one. I, I I like the um the sequence of when they they find find the girl in the garden and how they react to that and how they end up dispatching their first zombie because I think that's a real. This is how we're going to do our zombie the zombie part. Um with these bumbling characters who don't know how and then end up when the other guys there as well, they throw, start throwing toasters and throwing vinyl records. Um, it's just, it's a completely new take on working out what to do with, with zombies. Yeah. And the comedy tension and release in that scene is so well done where you're like, yeah. they're like calling to her. Hello. Hello. And you, and that she finally turns around and they're hello. like, okay, now yeah. they're going to twig that she's a zombie. And Sean just goes, man, she is so wasted. She's so drunk. <laughs> yeah. They keep, they keep twisting. Um, speaking, there's so, there are a lot of quotable lines in this, but it's just when, reminded me of one, when the guy, when they're watching the TV, they've just, they've just taken care of their first zombie and they're watching TV, watching the news report. And they look at, and, and the news re, uh, reader says, make sure all doors are closed. And they look up and the guy who's been to a wedding or something is there. And Sean says, he's got an arm off. <laughs> oh, I'll cut that part out because it's so boring when people just quote back their favourite lines. <laughs> but, God, that made me laugh. There are some crackers. Hey, what, what about... Um, what what about the other pages? There's 122 other pages outside of this. Uh, any any sort of notes you want to make? No, it's re- about that. it really is a fantastic screenplay. And my only kind of note would maybe be about the character of Avon. It felt like maybe that was reverse engineered because they wanted this kind of Deus Ex Machina moment at the ending. They decided that was the ending of the film, but it felt too coincidental or too 
yeah, too much of a deus ex machina. So they what they did is they went, well, it needs to be a, uh, you know, a callback or a reveal. It yeah, it needs to be seen and introduced, exactly. Yeah. So they went back and introduced this character who pops up three times, I think, throughout the film um, so that it feels slightly less mm. convenient that, you know, they're just saved by the arrival of the army at the end. So that's the only, like, minor mm. thing I noted in it. I like, I, it's an interesting idea but um, that... that- well, they're obvious, there's this, we get this hint that there's this whole other story happening. We just happen to be following Sean and his little band of friends and family. Yeah. I don't know if it particularly lands for me, and I think it's it's not ageing well either, and it's just, it, it, it. I did like the TV show Spaced, but it's just so clearly, to me, it's such a fan service moment <laughs> that doesn't really serve moving anything forward um particularly when when they go past each other and they've got the perfect mirror image it it sort of felt like it was suddenly a different thing um it didn't feel a lot of hard work in the the world that they'd established it was just a bit of a it was like yeah it was a very silly joke that didn't gel with the with the reality that they had um, that had been set up to that. Yeah, I think um, they they get away with that ending moment, the arrival of the army. For me, the saving grace is, as I said before, the the structure of this film turns on the rom com beats, not on the zombie beats. So by that moment of the film, Liz and Sean are already back together. Sean's, you know, finished his emotional arc of, you know, he's proven himself. He's grown up. He's you know, he's a mature guy now. Uh, and so you actually don't care so much at that point about how the zombie apocalypse is going to wrap up because the emotional journey of the character and the rom-com story has had a bow tied on it. So you're just kind of like, I think they they get away with it just being this quite convenient, quick, like, oh, and then the army came and everything was sorted out and they got back home safely. And that's, yeah, that's mm. why it works. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, and also... It's on, almost like, well, look, Yvonne is clearly the more capable of the yes. two because look where Sean's plan has ended up and uh, ends up needing to be saved by this old friend. Oh, there is an interesting um, detail that's not in the final film that's in the screenplay that reveals it just a tiny little bit more about Sean's background. When he first bumps into Yvonne, he she asks him if he's still DJing. Yeah. Which just, I thought it just like, was a nice little extra piece of background which i understand why they cut unnecessary but i go oh, okay yeah that makes sense that sean was a dj he's got the collection maybe he had he, that's what he because you don't really get any sort of sense of like what are his hopes and dreams. yeah and it is also um, such a sort of trope of men that won't grow up is they just want to keep the party going like they're always yeah. djs <laughs> yeah totally totally what do you make of the what do you make of the ending it's pretty macabre it's pretty it, it, it's fairly grim yeah Keeping Ed as like isn't it surely worse than death is being kept as a chained zombie <laughs> for your friend's amusement? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, a prince to me is a you know that's a funny, funny little coda to the film. It's I, See, here's my reading in too deeply. <laughs> I into, certainly the uh, credits don't roll, and I'm like, to be oh, a final what a, gag. What a downer. <laughs> I'm still uh, chuckling. Oh, no, put him out of his misery. But I also I also go like has Sean really changed or has um has Liz just uh readjusted her priorities because they went through the apocalypse so now they're just enjoying the more simple things in life. Oh well 
Because at the end, the plan their their plan for the day is what Sean would have done at the beginning. True. Except the only difference is that Liz is like up for it. I think my read on that is that it's uh, you know the messaging of the film then becomes like you don't need to abandon all the things you love and all your friendships and so on and so forth just to please your romantic partner you you just need some balance and so he's found a balance where he you know plays a little bit of okay nintendo with ed in the garden but he also you know prioritizes his relationship and nurtures that and so on and so forth yeah but as far as we know he still works at the electronics shop true you know he He hasn't gone back to school or anything But he's still still a bit of a loser. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, Shaun of the Dead. Okay. I've teased it at the beginning. My, my yeah, give me the story. Simon Pegg, Nick Frost story. So I, for a very short time back in 2011, wrote a blog on Tumblr just about comedy and stuff. And one time I wrote about when I met Simon Pegg at a book signing in New York City, which I was just there for a on holiday. And it was when his memoir nerd do well was released and i on a whim thought hang on a second this book's just come out i wonder if he's doing any book signings surprise surprise he was doing one in new york city while i was there at the strand bookshop so i went and lined up for hours i remember i was reading 1984 the novel for the first time just while waiting in line uh and i had had this whole despite thinking I'm a mature, rational person, I had this whole fantasy of how we were going to hit it off <laughs> and because I was going to make reference to something very obscure when he did, he and Nick did uh, uh, a couple of XFM radio shows, this London radio station, and I'd listen to those shows over and over. They did a few with Carl Pilkington and they're just, I just really enjoy them. It's around the time they were making Shaun of the Dead that they did these radio shows. So, in my mind, I thought, I'm going to mention these. He's going to go, oh, yeah, of course. Oh, wow, you really? Oh, well, blah, blah, blah. And we were going to hit it off and become <laughs> best friends forever. So a couple of years uh, after, or no, soon after, when I got back, I wrote this this blog entry of, of that experience and I scripted out how it went and how I thought it was going to go uh, because... It's, I don't know if you've had this experience, but meeting someone you really admire, particularly in a sort of in a transactional way like that, you just come away feeling empty. Yeah. You, it's never <laughs> satisfying. And I went up. So how it actually went was I went up and I said, oh, you know, I really like the XFM shows you and Nick did. And he said, thank you very much. He's like, oh, did you do more? Or was it just those like that week of Edinburgh? He's like, no, I think that was just it. That was it. And I went, okay, well, uh, you're really, really good. And it was just because it was obviously like, I've signed your book. You've had your moment. Move along. There's 2,000 people I've got to get through. So it was just, it left me feeling just empty. So wrote wrote about that and how I thought it was going to go. And I hammed it up a bit thinking, you know, saying, hey, we should be best friends. It mm-hmm. was intentionally over the top. Okay. So cut to a couple of years later, the world's end is coming out. And Nick Frost and Simon Pegg are coming to Australia to do their promotional tour and attend the premiere uh, of it in Melbourne. I was in Melbourne at the time. My friend Dean, Dean Thomas, was going to be on the red carpet to interview them as they came around uh, and, and, you know, did their red carpet thing. 
so they said to um, me, I was, I was not working with Dean. I was, you know, had nothing to do with it. He said, hey, Matt can't come. Why don't you come down and, uh, and just be with me on the red carpet? You can meet Simon Pegg and uh, Nick Frost again. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Haven't met Edgar Wright before. That'll be, that'll be cool. So down there, um, it was at the Melbourne Central in that, that big sort of indoor area uh, and lots of people they start making their way around and as soon as Nick Frost come walks up, Dean goes, hey, Nick, remember my friend Dave? And Nick Frost goes, oh, you're the one trying to steal my best friend. And I just <laughs> turned completely red and Simon Pegg walks over and Nick goes, hey, Simon, you remember Dave, don't you? And, he's, and Simon goes, oh, Dave, yeah, of course. Sorry, man, we were supposed to catch up after the book signing, but I just got really busy. I'm really sorry about that. Nick's saying like, hey, he's my best friend, all right? Stay away. So then I just I, I, I went into full survival mode when that was happening and just turned red and was like, oh, okay, yep, okay, ha, ha, sure, sure. And then they carried on. And then I found out subsequently that Dean had had a sit-down chat with them uh, and he said, hey, my friend Dave wrote this script about when he met you how how it actually went and how he thought it would go. Do you two mind playing it out for me? So Simon play, played himself and Nick Nick Frost played me. And that's amazing. So when the final video came together, and and, and like as you might imagine, Nick Frost's imp- impression of me was not kind, <laughs> <laughs> and it made me made me uh, made me look like an absolute loser, which I completely was. And so that's the time that uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg played a prank on me. That is a great story. Very good. I don't think it, w- it was the, as I described it at the time, it was the best and, like, worst thing that a friend has ever, has ever done. <laughs> um, and I don't, think it's, I don't think it's online anymore. I think it was, it was uh, made for above. Nova and in some website update it was just deleted. So I really wish I'd saved a copy of it. But, um, oh, well. When they come back for the for the next movie in the yeah, you can be humiliated all over again. <laughs> we can recreate it. All right, I think uh, that's it. Shaun of the Dead, we've done it. If you want to uh, get in touch with the show, first ten pod. Uh, so the ten is spelled out T E N. First ten pod at Gmail or online social media. Suggest a movie. Ask a question. Make a suggestion for a guest. Um, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Kia. Fade to black. The end. Hey, Sal, I'm glad you mentioned a news parody show because my best friend in the world, his name is Dave Ferrier, and he doesn't know I'm about to do this, so um, he, I guess he, he will. shoot me in the face? I'm not going to shoot you in the face. Oh, okay. But he... He'll shoot just, you in the leg. Just, yes. Just by chance, you guys are in New York at the same time. Uh, he went to a book signing. would have been probably about August 2011. Yes. He wrote a blog after meeting you because uh, he's a comedian, he's an absolute basket case like a lot yeah. of comedians are. But I've got here, um, just uh, excerpt, what he thought your interaction would be with each other. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if you guys could, it's just very short, if you could read, if you can play yourself, Simon, and if Nick, you could play yeah. Dave, that's the me bit. <laughs> so this is before he met you, how it was going to go in his head. Right. Is he Australian? Should I be Australian? You can if you want. I don't want to upset No, don't one. do that's that. That's fine. Hey, Simon, I love the book. Thanks, mate. Are you an Australian? Yeah, i got to say I really love the radio shows you and Nick did on XFM. 
funniest stuff ever broadcast, I reckon. Hey, wow, you must be a real fan if you know about that. So do you live in New York? No, it's just an awesome coincidence this is happening while I'm here. Oh, cool. Well, we must get a beer and, uh, and be friends after this. Oh, yeah, OK, sounds great. Is it OK if Nick Frost comes too? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> OK, give me a number and I'll call you later and we'll be best friends forever, OK? Sure thing. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> Okay, now this is what actually happened. happened. No, what were you going to say? No, I mean, listen, that's in, right. completely plausible. This is the truth. This is what actually happened. I love it, so okay. if you play the same roles, you guys are brilliant in the first time. Uh, hello, mate. Well, it's really terrific, Simon. I really enjoy it. Thanks, man. Um, I've noticed there are less photos in the American version than the British Australian version. Do you know why? Yeah, it's just a decision the publisher made. Okay, I've got to say, I really enjoyed the shows you and Nick did. It's a film. Was it a week in Edinburgh? Uh, yeah, just that, I think, and one or two others, I think. <laughs> you guy, you're great, you're great radio guys. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, Simon Pegg, high five, fuck yeah again, maybe, yeah, or awesome, and then, oh well, listen, lad. I remember that interaction, it was one of the best <laughs> on the whole tour. This is this is the one more little bit of information about this, Simon. He he could be at the the meet and greet with fans tomorrow. Oh yeah, I hope he's as electric as that. He's he's a he's a charismatic guy. But if I kind of if you remember this and I point him out, can you without me prompting anything to say Dave from New York? Is it possible you can do that? That would be hilarious. Yeah. So, Dave, Hello, Dave. It's from New York. Hi, Simon. Yeah. I met you in New York. Didn't yeah, I? I came to your book signing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to have a conversation with you because you yeah, were from best friends, but it didn't happen. Yeah, Stop it, up. it was a weird night because I was so busy, and but I really wanted to touch base. And when I looked for you afterwards, you'd gone. Oh really? I'm sorry about that. Right. Next time. Thanks, man. That was good. That was lovely. Cheers. Thank you, man. Cheers, Dave. Cynic. We find Steve.